Our scripture reading today comes from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Today we're going to look at a message uh, again in our time in Lent. We've been going through the book of John, and so we're now here at John 5. Uh, we're not going to go through all of John. As you may know, Lent is ending in two weeks. Uh, next week is Palm Sunday, and then after Palm Sunday is Easter. And so uh, do invite your friends. Many people uh, only come to church. Many people are only willing to come to church a few times a year. Those who are away from God, they they maybe have very little interest in the things of, of God or, or exploring Christianity. But I want to encourage you, there are some people who are more willing to say yes to come to church or to to consider the Christian faith during Easter and Christmas than any other time in the year. And rather than shame someone about that, I think it's it's wise to take advantage of the opportunity. Uh, we make use of every opportunity to preach Christ. And so uh, do think about before, you know, before Easter comes, think about who you might invite. Um, it's, it's good for people to hear the gospel. So um, today in our message, we're going to be looking at this passage as a parable or a symbol of the state of man, the nature of man. This message is entitled Blind, Lame, and Paralyzed. And again, earlier at the beginning of the service, we talked about lame not meaning uncool. Uh, lame, lame, if you're unaware of the word's meaning, it just simply means that you're unable to walk. And so um, this isn't something you call your you know, fourth grade fellow classmates 
This isn't a put down. It's just a description. So it, you know, the political correct world says, you know, it's, it's inappropriate. You don't call someone blind. You call them visually impaired. You don't call someone deaf. You call them hearing impaired. And I'm just going to say that the Bible in the way that it's translated calls people blind, lame, deaf, and uh, mute. Not uh, not dumb or stupid, but mute. I think mute's a better word. So the, this is not uh, this is not talking about people who are just uncool. This is talking about people who cannot move. So in case you were unaware of that word's meaning, I just wanted to cover that really quickly. So this is a a parable or a symbol of the nature of man. And in exploring out the condition that man has, we're going to look at what Jesus comes and does about it. Jesus, from if you remember our reading, he asks a question to this lame man who uh, has been sitting by the pool for such a long time. He asks this question, and I think that question actually is a very important question to consider. So we're going to look at that really quickly. We're going to look at the words of healing that Jesus utters. Not only does Jesus ask a question, but he provides an answer to the to the situation. And so the the words of healing and how they're played out in this man's life, we're going to take a look at that briefly. And then finally, the idea that after every work of Jesus or every work of of God, every every time power is on display, religious objection it just comes up. It's kind of like if you've ever played that game Whack-A-Mole. You know, when you whack one mole, what happens? Two come up, right? And so you're you got to get a friend. You have to cheat with to win that game. You have to get two or three people to whack all the moles and everybody has their own hole that is designated for them. But that's what happens whenever God comes in in the gospels and and solves a problem. The same is true today. When God's power is on display in our lives, it's often the case that instantly religious People or religious uh, ideas just pop up in objection to God's work. And so finally, we're going to look at the present work of Jesus Christ today, that what he says about his understanding of the Sabbath, his purpose for history and for time, says about our need, our condition, and his ability to meet our need. So at the beginning of this uh, situation, I want to just highlight and uh just for a second, if you look in your Bibles or you were paying attention during the reading, you may have noticed that there's no verse 4 in the English Standard Version. And the reason that there is no verse 4, it goes from 3 to 5, is because it has been discovered over the centuries that verse 4 is not in all of the copies of the of the uh, first and second generations of the, the copies. Not the original manuscripts, we don't have any of those. Uh, and it's probably good that we don't have any of those. We'd probably set up shrines and things like this to them. But uh, the earliest copies, and some, and, and, and so there's some disagreement to whether verse 4 is authoritative, if it was ever part of the gospel, or if it was just what they call a, an annotation. That is, a scribe took the liberty of writing an, an, a, uh, an explanatory comment in the margin, and then over time it got copied in. So it's not covered, but that's not a, a big problem. If you have a big problem with that, you think to yourself, oh no, our Bible is ruined, we, our faith is shattered, talk to me later, we can talk about why it's, it's actually not that big of an issue. Um, in fact, it, this happens so frequently in the text of the scriptures that uh, I've only had other, one other situation at the end of uh, Mark uh, where we've even had to discuss this. And so uh, it's it's not a big deal. But I just wanted to, to let you know that we're not 
we're not i didn't i didn't delete verse four uh it's not a trick that we're pulling so uh it's just the translators have determined that it's it, it's questionable whether it's authoritative or not so um with that said let's look at this situation that's going on so there's a pool there's this pool and verse four which was taken out uh, because there's questions to its authoritative nature. It just gives a description of what was happening. Uh, lore has it, or or at the time it was believed, that every once in a while God would send an angel and he would come and stir the waters of that pool. And that pool, having been stirred, would then have in it a miracle of God waiting to happen that whoever was sitting by the pool, if they were the first one to jump into the water, they would be healed. And so that's why all these people, this isn't a country club in Bethesda, Maryland. This is a pool in Israel. And there's something special about this water. That's why everybody's hanging out. And so these people here are in uh, in a, a dire situation. These people are blind. They are lame. That is, they can't walk and they're paralyzed. And I think that these aspects of the condition of these people are a parable for the nature of man. Being blind, we are unable to see God, to perceive him as holy, and we are unable to determine or distinguish the distance between him and ourselves. Being lame, we are unable to do anything about moving ourselves toward God. We're unable to make progress in holiness or approaching God. As Isaiah says, all of our righteous deeds are considered to be as filthy rags. I was cleaning my guitar, uh, not this guitar, another guitar the other day, and I noticed that there was all this corrosion and grime and dirt on the fretboard, and everything was gross. It was like metal had been, the metal strings over 10 years had, uh, you know, have you ever seen bronze when it gets that green patina? There was green patina on my guitar, and so I wanted to clean it. So what did I use? I didn't use a colored rag that was not very uh, clean. I used white paper towels that have been bleached in a factory so that I could see the progress I was making. That is what you want. You want clean rags. You want clean and white sheets and garments. You don't want dirtiness when you're going to be cleaning up something or, or presenting something. You want, clean, uh, you want clean cloths. And our righteousness before God is dirty. It's a dirty rag. Being paralyzed, we are unable to feel the effects of sin and are dead to the the reality of the danger in which we are in. A paralyzed person cannot feel if if they've placed their hand on a burner and determine whether or not they're in pain. The way that they determine is the smell. It's bad. They start smelling the burn before they start feeling the burn. Paralyzed people do not feel uh, things. At least they don't feel good things. They don't feel any sort of sensory uh, data that helps them survive, helps them avoid danger, helps them live as a person. Uh, I, I have a number of friends who have had temporary paralysis in a limb or some sort of situation, and oftentimes that area of their body gets hurt more because they're unaware that they've just, you know, clunk it into something. It's, it's a terrible situation. And so I believe the, that these conditions, we can read them as a parable concerning the nature of man. We are blind to our standing before God. We are lame and unable to do anything about it. And we are paralyzed. We are dead to the effect of sin. And we are unable to feel the consequences that it is having in our life. And so this is a dire situation. It's a dire condition. And the phrase that we may hear today is time heals all wounds. How many of you have heard that? 
you've you've broken up with a girlfriend or you've had a somebody backstab you and you just people give you this advice they just say well it you know it takes a while and time time will heal it just give it some time i want to submit to you that that is not true that may be true for some things some scabs do form and some bones do mend but most of the time when it's a serious problem Unless you have someone look at the problem, it's not going to be healed. Time does not heal all wounds. This man here has been lame or paralyzed or laying there for 38 years. I would think after 38 years, he might have started to believe, I'm not going to get better on my own. I have, you know, like a problem with anything in my body for more than a few days, and I'm starting to dream, oh, I'm going to die. I'm, oh, I've got to go to the hospital. After 38 years, it's clear that this man is not getting better on his own. And this is, again, a testimony to the nature of men as sinners before God. They are unable to do anything about their condition, and they're not getting better. It's not sort of a progressive element of history that man is just improving. And so the man in focus has been there a long time, and that's a speaking of the permanent nature of the fall. We have been under the weight of sin, and we will not recover unless someone remedies us. Without intervention, a sinner remains just that, a sinner. It does not get any better for him. It just gets worse. Thanks be to God, we do not have a faith that first condemns the condition of man and then does nothing about it, but rather indicates precisely what it is. It calls a spade a spade, and then it deals with a solution. It is not loving to let someone who is doing something dangerous continue to do that dangerous thing without warning. It is not loving at all. And it is also not loving and would be considered malpractice if you have any question about this, you can see our multiple qualified medical staff after, uh, not our staff, but our medical personnel that we know here at Grace Christian Fellowship, it would be considered malpractice to leave gangrene in the body of a patient. If you see gangrene, it has to be removed. It has to be cut out. That is the remedy for that sort of problem. And when the Christian faith talks about the deadness of men's hearts, and then speaks of God making a new heart and cutting it out. That is what it's talking about. Men need new hearts. And so this is what Jesus Christ is doing by indication in this passage. He is taking care of the root of the problem, as we'll see him say in just a few minutes. Jesus sees this man. He, he's going by this pool, and he asks him a question. And I think this question is very important to consider. He says in verse 6, do you want to be healed? Now, that may seem a little bit insulting. If you were there, and you had been there for years, and I don't know if it, if the text doesn't say that this man had been there for 38 years. It just means that he was sick for 38 years. I don't know about you, but if I was sick with anything for 38 years— I might be a little insulted. Hearing, do you want to be healed? Well, sure. (laughs) Of course. But that's not always the case, is it? If my understanding of this passage is correct and the sickness of these individuals can be compared with sin, then I think it's important to understand both this man's response and the validity of Jesus' question. We are often comfortable with our sin. You and I, we are often comfortable with our sin. Sin in your life is not just a mistake. It's not just something that you messed up. 
It's not just choosing A or B and you chose wrongly. It's not flavors. That's not what sin is. Although it is that occasionally, sin can be mistakes. You can make a mistake and it simply is not honoring to God, it's not honoring to your neighbor, and therefore it's sin. But most of the time, sin is made manifest, it's present in our life, in patterns of sin, in habits, in the way that we handle relationships, in the way that we organize our life, the way that we even think that we are in control of our life. Sin is manifested in our lives in many more ways than just lying or stealing gum from the grocery store. It's not just little trivial things. It's things that we like, things that we love. I have a uh, a great love this time of year, not just of the season of Lent, but of Girl Scout cookies. Girl Scout cookies come but once a year. And I looked at the Girl Scout cookies in my freezer. I keep them in the freezer because, I, you know, Thin Mints Cold are the best things in the world. And so I, I've looked at my cookies the other night, and I looked at how, you know, we bought six boxes. And we had some friends to help us eat, so I'm not pigging out on the cookies. I am, but it's not that bad. And so I looked, and there were only three boxes, or four boxes, maybe three. And so I think to, I, I thought to myself, you know, we've bought just enough uh, cookies this year so that when they stop selling cookies, we'll also be out. <laughs> they, won't, they won't have lasted any length of time. I like overeating. Perhaps you do too. Now, I'm not here preaching, you know, some South Beach diet method or whatever. It's not about food necessarily. It can be about whatever. But many of the things that we do that are sinful before God, that are destructive to us, it's actually in our best interest to be delivered from them. They're things we like. And so Jesus' question, do you want to be healed, is an important question. You have to ask this of yourself. And in fact, the Lord asks it of you all the time. Do you want to be healed? Again, men are paralyzed, so they do not feel the effects of the danger and pain of their sin. But the question remains the same. Are you willing to be healed? And that question presupposes, or inside that question is another question. Do you even know you need to be healed? Are you even aware of the problem? Many times we're not. There are things we like to do. It's, it's ways of thinking, ways of living, harboring bitterness, living in unforgiveness. This is, these are things that we have, have become accustomed to. They're coping mechanisms or they're dysfunctionalities that we have loved and built into habits in our lives. And these are uh, things that need to be rooted out. And so Jesus asks this question, do you want to be healed? But that presupposes another question, are you aware of the problem? And then finally, what I love about this man's response is the truth that it contains. If you ever uh, are reading the Gospels, one of the key ways to understand a text is to remember that most of the time, most of the time, the disciples get the questions wrong. And a lot of the time, the people who aren't close to Jesus, they're just commoners, uh, they get the question right. You can think of the Roman centurion. You can think of the, the woman who uh, has a, a child with a, a demon, uh, the Samaritan woman. You can think of a number of situations. And this is one of the situations where this man gets it right. Rather than being an excuse, I think his response is totally correct. 
In verse 7, he says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going down, another steps before me. This is not an excuse. It may sound like an excuse. It may seem like an excuse, but he's actually telling the truth. He says, Sir, I don't have anyone to put me in the pool. No one here is helping. And then finally, the other one is, I can't get there fast enough. He tells the truth. He gives a right account of his standing before God. Far from being an excuse for why he isn't healed, this man confesses his inability, and this is the right response to the indication from God. When the gospel is presented and the appeal is made to the sinner, do you wish to be reconciled to God? The appeal is is not given without with some sort of trick in it, but rather it's given so that the person might understand their need for God's salvation. Sir, I'm unable to get down and no one here is helping. That is what the gospel call is to the sinner. Christ responds to this man's uh, account, this man's recollection of the situation as it being a response in faith. Remember, Jesus always is most astonished at a lack of faith a lack of belief in who he is and who God is and what God's word says. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, verse nine, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Now I just want to give a little bit of background for what we're going to be talking about in a second. The law of God commands that no work be done on the Sabbath and that, that the Israelites rest from their labor. That's the law of the land and the place that they're living, and that's the law that the people of God were to follow. And so, this is setting up a confrontation with the Pharisees. The command that's given by Christ on the Sabbath carries the actual grace to perform the healing. The gospel, when it is presented authentically to sinners, carries with it a message of grace by which the Holy Spirit is pleased to move on the hearts of those who need to hear. The man is not healed, look carefully, the man is not healed by the taking up of his bed. He is healed first and then takes up his bed and walks. The Christian faith does not call you to repent from your dead works before it first promises new life and forgiveness with God through the blood, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are not called as a believer, to act on your own so that you might be righteous before God, to do some sort of cleaning of house so that you could be presentable, to turn over a new leaf so that then God could make you uh, one who's grafted in. The Christian faith is forgiveness, healing, new, new life, resurrection, and then maturity, growth, walking in holiness. This man absolutely does participate in obedience, but it comes after the fact. If you're not clear of this, look closely, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. First he's healed, then he obeys. First you're saved, then you can be sanctified. Though we know that Jesus is the one doing the saving, his words result in action. It's, it's, it, it's a twofold error to believe that you must do something first, and then it's another error is that after you're saved, you don't have to do anything at all. Those are two different types of errors, but they're very similar in, in nature. They fail to understand the message of the gospel. It is to repent and believe. It is to be made new and to walk according to the Spirit. 
it's not to just trust that everything will pan out, right? This isn't our understanding of the Christian life. If it was, why do we come to church or continue living at all? We should just, you know, minimize pain and set up a situation in which we can all stay home and not have to do much and uh, don't get involved in the cares of the world because everything's just going to happen. God's just going to produce faith in us and he's just going to mature us by himself. I don't like that. One of my least favorite phrases, although I I appreciate the truth that it contains, is let go and let God. <laughs> or Jesus take the wheel. Yes, Jesus take the wheel, but <laughs> come on. His works, or his words, Jesus' words, necessarily result in action in the one being saved. It is obedience after faith. It's not obedience to produce faith. A belief about salvation that removes the need for the response on the hearer is wrong. And likewise, after hearing God's word, don't think to yourself that there's nothing left to do. It is, it is a vital and important part of the Christian life that you understand that your obedience is demanded, and the obedience which is demanded to the law of God is given in the grace of the new birth and the continuing present work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so this idea that you are just supposed to let go and let God is not completely true. Yes, you do need to let God direct your life. Yes, you do need to uh, live in such a way as you are receptive of his grace and you live in a posture where, according to John 15, that Jesus testifying of himself, I am the vine, you are the branches, apart from me you can do nothing. You do need to live in that way, but he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not, a, not in me, don't do anything at all, because I'm doing it all for you. The Christian faith is obedience after uh, regeneration. So, after having been restored by the word of Christ, obedience must follow. When I say it must follow, I'm not saying it must follow so that you get saved. I'm saying it must as a logical necessity. As in, obedience will follow, you will obey God, after you are saved, as a logical outworking. It's like water rolling down a hill. It will keep rolling. So this idea that obedience on the part of the Christian is necessary does not say that obedience is necessary before someone becomes a Christian. It's not possible. Afterward, verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more. What is that? That's a command. Jesus is not just going to come around and, and, you know, touch this person or that person, heal them, and then let them do whatever they want. Jesus is in the business of rescuing this person. He says, sin no more. That's a command, that nothing, may worse, uh, nothing worse may happen to you. Though we may imply that this man's illness is a result of his sin, it's not totally clear. You can read this verse and think to yourself, okay, well, Jesus is telling this man to not sin anymore so that nothing worse may happen. It seems like Jesus is indicating that his illness or his sickness was a result of his sin. But I don't think that that is a concrete implication. I don't think you can take this verse and say that from this verse alone. What I think can be clearly stated is that Jesus is warning this person about the effects of sin, whether or not he becomes sick again. 
Jesus is telling this person, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you because falling into habitual sin that destroys one's soul is worse than being paralyzed. I think that is clear from what Jesus is saying. If you continue to live in sin after having been called and healed by Jesus Christ, it is worse than him never have coming by you in the first place because you think you're okay. If this man is, is walking around and yet he enters into a lifestyle of sin, he's, it's just like he's paralyzed, except now he's paralyzed in the spirit instead of naturally. And he's dead to the effects of the pain and problem of sin in his life. As soon as anything like this happens in somebody's life, religious objections pop up immediately, right? We talked about the whack-a-mole illustration. This is, it's just kind of like weeds after sowing a field. They just show up. I plant a garden. I planted it last year. I'm getting ready to plant one this year. If you come over to my house, you'll see a folding table full of little tiny pods of seeds in dirt. And it it looks kind of crazy. I'm not going to lie. If you want pictures, I'll send them to you later. But as soon as you sow a field, weeds show up immediately. You don't have to plant the weeds. You have to plant the fruit, you have to plant the vegetables, but you don't have to plant the weeds. They show up immediately. Likewise, in this scenario, as soon as Jesus Christ does something to this man, as soon as he heals him, religious objections show up immediately. Verse uh, 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. You know what? They're right. It isn't lawful in the way that they understand God's law. It is certainly not correct to say that man is not able to do anything restorative, which is what this is all about. This person, the the man who's healed in verse 11, he says, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. He is saying that the authoritative word of Jesus Christ was the right understanding of what it's appropriate to do on the Sabbath. It's not that these people, these legalists who, who say, you can't do any sort of work on the Sabbath, lest God not be pleased with you, uh, have the right understanding. The Sabbath is not made for man. Or sorry, man is not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath is made for the man. The point of this scenario is that Jesus is demonstrating the hypocrisy of the legalists, the Pharisees, these people who were religious. They, they, they liked to be seen as close to God, but they were far from him in their hearts. These people object to a man being healed after 38 years. That, a man being healed after 38 years of illness or sickness, permanent disease of which he was not recovering, is reason to have a block party. And these people are, are wanting to shut it down. They wanted to reverse what had happened, if they could have. And so these people show up with all these objections and they, they accuse this man of committing sin in which he was obeying Jesus' word. Self-preservation is the name of the game for these religious people. And, and this is how you can tell whether someone is really following Jesus Christ or is just wishing to seem religious. They take all of their problems in life, they wrap them with a little bit of religious veneer or a little facade, a little bit of uh, of paint, but really inward, it's dead. And they then represent whatever problem they have, whatever sin they want to do as something holy and righteous. 
oh, brother, I'm just sharing this with you so we'll both be able to pray about it. You ever heard that when somebody's gossiping, when someone's slandering a brother in Christ behind their back to you? You ever hear that? I hear that all the time, <laughs> especially being a pastor. People tell, it's, it's worse than when I was a kid and, and all of our siblings, we would kind of tell on each other to our parents. It's way worse being a pastor. You hear all sorts of things that you should be hearing from the person and someone else is coming and telling you. And, and people just want to play it off, well, I just thought you should know. And no, no. And so this is, this is what the religious heart wishes to do. It's self-preservation. Worry in the name of planning. This is probably one of the most susceptible things that we, uh, that we engage in without understanding our own hearts. In the, in the desire to seem like we are scheduling our life and setting things up and, and you know, looking at all the areas of life, all the dimensions of life, we're actually just really engaging in worry. Now, I'm not saying don't plan. I'm saying don't worry while you plan. Bitterness that's masked as prudence. I hear probably one of the most common sins that I hear from people confess to me, but they're not actually thinking they're confessing to me because they're not aware of the nature of of the problem is when they tell me a past sin that someone else has done to them, and then they just kind of mask it as prudence. They just want... They want to to seem as if they're being wise about not trusting that person again, or not confiding in that person again, or not not making themselves vulnerable to their brother or sister or spouse or child or parent. It's masked as prudence. They 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 remind you of well, this person hurt me in the past, but you know, I forgive them. But but it's just you know, I'm just going to stay isolated and. I'm going to make a shell around me and no one will touch me again. That's unforgiveness. That's bitterness. And yet it seems very religious when you say, well, I'm just, I'm just doing this to be wise. And, you know, I just want to, I want to, I want everyone to understand that, you know, you just have to treat them like that. The greed that pretends to be stewardship. This is a very subtle and yet easily, uh, easily, easily committed sin. The idea that I should be uh, taking care of my wealth, taking care of everything that's under my stewardship, and yet really it is greed. That's how deep sin goes for men and women, mankind. This is how deep and subtle sin can be. And so these religious objections, which take place in this form, it's the exact same thing although it looks different in this situation. These people are objecting because they wish to be seen as righteous before God, yet they don't understand God's word or his will, and so they are unrighteous. These people, these Pharisees who wished that they could shut down this work of healing, are objecting on the grounds of God's word, yet they don't have a foundation to stand on because they don't understand God's word at all. The healing on this, of this man on the Sabbath was just one of many in the ministry of Christ. This is one of many times in the Gospels where he does a good work on the Sabbath. And the Jews' understanding of the purpose of the Sabbath was completely backward. They thought that by keeping the Sabbath, by not doing any sort of work, less, you know, let alone picking up a bundle of sticks or anything like that, that they were earning favor before God, that they were going to remain in favor before God, by keeping the Sabbath. 
and that if you did not keep the Sabbath, you would be uh, cursed before God. Now, that's true, but their understanding of what the Sabbath is and what keeping the Sabbath means was wrong. They understood the implications and the weight of what they were dealing with, but they didn't understand the meaning at all. Christ knows that the Father is pleased with the doing of his will. And the doing of his will is keeping the Sabbath, and the point of the Sabbath is the restoration of man. It's for rest, it's for protection, it's for recreation. It's not necessarily for going on a 12-hour Netflix binge. That's, that's entertainment. That's being detained from entering. But recreation, something that restores your soul. Now, you can do recreational hobbies, but according to the Pharisees, any sort of recreational hobby would be some sort of work, and you wouldn't be able to do it. If you were an academic, you couldn't read a book on the Sabbath, because that was your vocation. This is not the right understanding of the Sabbath, and you see the moral trepidation that happens when they're presented with this fact that the man who healed me said, take up your bed and walk. They have no response. By restoring the sick man on the Sabbath, whenever he needed restored, Christ was keeping the Sabbath. It was the Pharisees who were breaking the Sabbath because they were actually doing the work, legally speaking, of searching through the scriptures and determining whether or not a matter is righteous or not. That's breaking the Sabbath in their own system. Verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Not because Jesus was breaking the law as God intended his law to be understood, but rather because he was breaking their law that they had hijacked from God's law. They had taken God's law, reinterpreted it in a system foreign to God, and then made it their own code, which they hoped to per- perform before Christ, uh, before God therefore not needing Christ. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them and said, my father is working until now and I am working. And this is what gives us as Christians the greatest hope. Although men are blind, unable to see the distance between them and God, although men are lame and unable to move themselves close to him, although men are paralyzed and cannot feel the effects and pain of sin and it's it's Uh, problems that it's making in that person's life. Although all that is true, Jesus Christ gives us hope. He says, I am working until now. Jesus Christ is not boxed in by our religious understanding. He is continuing to work, and that work continues until today. The initial state of man which we have considered is not the final word. Of Christianity, though it is very common that those in the world understand that Christians say that all men are sinners. That is not the end of the Christian message. Jesus Christ continues to save and restore today. He is still working. And so we, we have hope. This is where the Christian hope is, is uh, from. Though Christians continue to mature throughout our whole lives, we are not called to walk in perpetual brokenness. What I mean by that is some of you may have come to Christ recently, or maybe you have, maybe you grew up in church or you're coming back to the Lord. That's wonderful. But I want to encourage you that you are not supposed to walk in perpetual brokenness. This man was raised up and he walked. It doesn't say that he continued to limp 
or had some signs of atrophy? I got to tell you, after 38 years, you're not going to walk really well unless there's a restorative miracle. You're probably not going to even stand. I've seen people who've, or heard stories of people who've been walking for less than a few months, and immediately their legs are, you know, a third as strong as they used to be. This man was able to walk, and he walked well, and defended his walking before the religious objectors. Christians are not called to live in a state of perpetual brokenness for their entire life. And what I mean by that is the things that we've discussed earlier, the toleration of sin, the compromise, the settling, the, the, the dismissing things as just, oh, that's just my personality. Put, permitting sin in a believer's life is not acceptable. It's not what Christ died for. There is a life in walking in uprightness and holiness before God that does not accord with, it doesn't have fellowship with, continual brokenness in an area of life. Now, while that is a wonderful idea, that's a wonderful message, how do we get there? Well, we get there just in the same way that this man was healed. First, Christ speaks, and then we obey. That's what it means to be a Christian, continuing on this walk in which we make war against sin. If you find yourself in this sort of state, like I just said, you, you, something comes to mind in your life where I say, we are not called to walk in perpetual brokenness, and you then think in your mind, well, what about this area, or what about this situation? If you have those thoughts right now, take hope, take courage. You're at least aware of the problem. That's much more important than, than having it just automatically settled. That's actually a good situation to be in. You're at least aware of your need. And when Jesus comes and asks you the question, do you want to be healed? You can rightly understand and rightly respond. Yes, I, Lord, I do. I need you to heal me in this. I'm lame in this area. I'm, I'm paralyzed. I don't, I don't feel, I don't appreciate the pain and the problem that this sin, this area of my life, which is broken, is causing to the rest of, of my life and the will that you have for me. It's a, you're able in that scenario to respond rightly with faith. Lord, I've tried and I can't. I don't have the ability to do it on my own. I need you to heal me. That is a good situation, though it doesn't seem like it. Christ is still working today and is able to save and restore even you. Even people who name the name of Jesus Christ, even people who believe they are Christians and may even be Christians, they may even be uh, reborn after the image of God. Even people like that have problems in which they're dead to the effects of sin or unable to do something about it. But that is not where God wants to leave you. You are not to sit by a pool and hope that one day you get in first and that one day luck strikes and it's your time. You are called to walk in holiness before God. And that has been purchased for you by his cross. When he shed his blood, died a death that you deserved, and then for you, defeated death three days later, rose from the grave victoriously, ascended to heaven, and then sitting at the right hand of, of God, he rules and reigns and dispenses grace through his word, through his church, through his sacraments, to you so that you would not walk in perpetual brokenness. 
God wants to save and restore and heal. It's not his desire that you would go back to sitting beside pools waiting for your chance. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is so beautiful. Lord, your mercy and grace, which is unthinkable to us, that you not only are the God and creator of the universe, the creator of all that is, but Lord, you have compassion on weak, sick, disgusting people. Lord, I pray that today you would deliver me from any areas of brokenness, that you would deliver all of us, Lord, from those things that we are blind to. Give us the grace and the gift of seeing the problem rightly. Lord, I pray that you would deliver us from the deception that we are fine without you and that we can just live our lives on our own and occasionally touch base with you. God, give us the grace of knowing where our healing comes from and knowing that not only are we healed in your name, but we walk in your name. God, we thank you for this wonderful call and promise that you give to us, that we can be right with you upon hearing the word of God and responding in faith. Lord, we ask that today that you would call to us, that you would ask us the question, do we want to be healed? And Lord, give us grace to respond rightly. Lord, we pray that as we come to this table, that we would both feel welcomed by you and also, Lord, that you would remedy those areas of life which are are dead, which are lame, which are paralyzed. Lord, I pray that you would give us a wonderful grace that we would be uh, not complacent with any sin in our life, that we would not only make war on sin, but we would do it rightly, being informed by your word and also empowered by your spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.